a deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hello, listeners. Welcome to a Deeper Look podcast. I'm Patrick Fine, CEO of FHI360, and I'm joined today by Musabel Welongo, founder and executive director of Resilience Action International, a refugee-run NGO in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. Musabel, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me, Patrick. It's really great to be here. As our returning listeners know, this year the podcast is exploring the theme of a darker side of development. We're looking at paradoxes and unintended consequences of development efforts. The issues that we as a development community often shy away from. Today I'm pleased to have Musabel with us because not only can he bring an informed perspective as a person who grew up in a refugee camp who has interacted with the development practitioners and organizations throughout his life. He also brings a youth perspective to the question. Musabel just graduated from Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. Musabel, congratulations. Thank you. It's a great achievement. He's a Congolese citizen who lived as a refugee in Kenya and Tanzania and as a displaced person in his own country, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Musabel founded Resilience Action International in 2010 to promote education, economic independence, and reproductive health among young people in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. Since 2012, his organization has been able to provide functional literacy, English lessons, vocational training, to more than 3,000 refugees. Resilience Action also provides information on sexual and reproductive health to more than 8,000 adolescent girls and boys in Kakuma. So, Musabel, I'd like to know a little about you and the journey that led you from being displaced from your home in the DRC to living as a refugee in Tanzania and in Kenya. So can you tell us a little bit about the journey that took you from the DRC Mm -hmm. to one of the most prestigious universities in the United States. Yeah, it's it's a miraculous journey. So I was born in the eastern part of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, As as you know, it's the part that has been really affected by uh, all this ongoing conflict, whether civil, but also, you know, with external countries also being involved in the country. And I became a refugee early on in my life, six to seven years old. I went on to live in Tanzania. That was the first time I I ran away. Uh, I lived with my parents for three years of that. We were, you know, juggling between Tanzania and and going back to Congo. We would live in Tanzania for a month and then they kick us out and we will go back. It wasn't until 1999 when I actually now started living full time in a refugee camp in Tanzania with a foster parent. Who was also in the refugee camp. Who was also in the refugee camp. So I got separated with my family, both my father and mother by this time. And I had no other choice but just, you know, join the family and they really took care of me. So I ended up finishing my primary school in the refugee camp. It's called Lugufu Refugee Camp. It's in the western part of Tanzania. And I also started and finished my entire high school in that refugee camp. You know, it's not your typical education system, but I'm still happy that there was a basis for me 
to finally build up my career up to where I am right now. So I went back to Baraka, which is in South Kivu. The government was saying there is peace in the country. But then as soon as I arrived, I started being an individual target because I was involved in so much development activity as a refugee. In Tanzania, I created children parliament there. I was an advocate of children's rights. I was just involved in so much that for some reason, you know, I was a threat to so many people back home. And I lived there just four months before I went back again to Tanzania because life was even more difficult than I had experienced it. And this time, Tanzania was not welcoming refugees. That was 2009. They say we are only taking refugees out of Tanzania, not bringing them in, because your government says the country is peaceful. And unfortunately, you know, that policy is still there even now. Tanzania is officially not taking in Congolese refugees. But but you, you, look, you look into the past 10 years, there's been a lot of war happening in the east of, of Congo. And now you have the Ebola epidemic exactly. as well. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, who are the victims, who are the people affected here, you know, there are those mothers and children who are forced to run away. So you've gone back to Tanzania, and mm-hmm. it's 2009. The Tanzanians are not welcoming new refugees from yeah. DRC. So you then went to Kenya? So I, I smuggled myself into <laughs> Kenya, and I lived in Kenya and Nairobi for a few months, then went to start living in Kakuma refugee camp. I started noticing the lack of services there. I wanted to advance my education. That was like my first priority, arriving there. And I noticed the first lesson I needed was to adapt myself to the English language. So I started taking uh, English lessons. And that's also the same time I created my organization. So as I was learning English, we were also providing English lessons to other refugees in the community. Uh, And in 2011, I got accepted into a program run by Jesuit Worldwide Learning to uh, take a three-year online diploma, which gives you about 45 credit hours from a U.S. university. And I was able to use that with a partial scholarship that I also got from the Jesuits to go to Nairobi and finish my bachelor degree at the Catholic University of Eastern Africa. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when I was there, I, I just kept thinking about just getting done with my education so that I can be ready as a professional. So I started applying to different master's programs. I applied to 12 of them in different places of the world, and I got into two only, uh, and Georgetown being one of them. That's great. Yeah. That's an amazing journey. In Kakuma Refugee Camp, there was a all total new aspect of life than I, I was used to from growing up in Tanzania. These two refugee camps are a little bit different. That's interesting. What makes them different? So the one in Tanzania, environment-wise, for example, is in a much better, more comfortable climate. In, in Kenya, it's in a purely arid area. It's always windy and dusty and uh, sunny almost no rain but also for that reason you know the shelter for example is different Mm -hmm. in tanzania nothing is given to refugees in terms of shelter support in kenya you build the house and unhcr puts the roof yes on your shelter and and unhcr gives you a latrine a pit latrine in tanzania unhcr does not give you that and also in terms of access to services in general i feel like kakuma refugee camp is a little bit more oriented towards the self-sustainability or self-sufficiency of refugees Mm -hmm. whereas the tanzanian one is more about you're a refugee sit there wait for service and do nothing else 
a few months ago the government just came and out of nowhere yeah government. exactly out of nowhere and said there's no markets there's no opening small shops there is no riding bicycles there's no riding motorbikes in the camp so bicycles and motorbikes are like you know the key for transport of, exactly like boda 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 you know just it's, for our listeners yeah. who may not know boda 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 bodas are bicycle taxis yeah so it would be a way of earning some revenue exactly and and the government comes and says no boda boda in the camp you know those are like some of the way refugees can earn at least you know fifteen dollar per month twenty dollar per month to feed okay, their so whole family maybe this takes us to some of the power dynamics yeah. We've talked on this podcast in the past about the way power is exercised mm-hmm. often leads to the kind of paradoxes or unintended consequences that we think of as the darker side of development. So what's your take on the power dynamics in refugee camps or with refugee policy? Yeah. I, I think the first thing to note is in terms of the refugee operations or, or you know, when talking about refugee service, there are two main ways I see them. There are services that are at a very beginning, what UNHCR calls an emergency situation, mm-hmm. whereby you know an influx of refugees is coming into one area. And in this one, there is a lot of power dynamic in play, but in some way you cannot control that because everything is just happening very fast. That's a humanitarian response. In, yeah, exactly. But again, as you look into this with time, UNHCR kind of forgets to leave behind the humanitarian response as the refugee situation goes towards a refugee city-like life. So as you have people who Mm -hmm. are now resettled and they'll be there for the long term. Exactly. I lived in Tanzania for 13 years. I lived in Kenya for eight years. I know people who have lived in Kenya for the past 25 years. And still, most of the services are still being given as if it was an emergency situation, you know. And all UNHCR budgets are approved on annual basis. I suppose the reason for that is because in the international community, so in the host country, Tanzania or Kenya, and in the international organizations like UNHCR, the policy is that this is a temporary situation to help people who yeah. are in need until they can go back to their homes. So there's a reluctance or maybe an unwillingness yeah. to treat these resettled populations like they're permanent residents. And, and you know, the worst part to that part is the reluctance is still there even with the data that organizations like UNHCR and the international community at large controls, right? Whether you are in Africa, whether you're in the Middle East, wherever you go, there is already, you know, a lot of information out there that suggests we should not just treat the refugee situation as if it is temporary. Right. So I don't know really why there is all this reluctance and why we cannot start treating these refugee cities that we are building as more long-term places. I think that data shows that the average time is 17 years, and that that time is actually growing longer. Mm -hmm. So that data is a couple of years old, and and I've even read that now... Could be even 20 years, you know. Yeah, could be 18 to 20 years. Exactly, so that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. The reason why I gave this example of between emergency and and non-emergency is because when talking about power dynamics, 
if we were able to distinguish these two, we could have been talking about two different things. Right now, we kind of mix them together. And it's not just the UNHCR. I think it's it's around the entire system. For example, you know, what is the relationship between an NGO worker within a refugee camp and the refugee that they are serving? The power dynamic is almost as if I would call it an unintentional hierarchy, whereby one is, you know, superior And the other one is supposed to listen and the other one is supposed to give or talk. That's one way of looking at it because it might disrupt the way refugees are actually able to contribute. Because at the end of the day, as a refugee myself, you know, 21 years, there is one lesson that I've learned living as a refugee. Humanitarian assistance and all the services are very important, but they are only part of a refugee community's life. So much happens in a community among the people themselves. Mm-hmm. It's those connections, those relationships. It is how people support each other during some difficult moments. It's how people build institutions within the refugee camps. In Tanzania, for example, the refugees are the one who run the entire education system. Tanzania teaches English and, and Swahili. The Congolese, they teach in French. Mm-hmm. So the entire system the teachers, the coordinators, the, the inspectors are all refugees, right? But how much do we help these refugees to ensure that the system that is being built by them recognizes their effort and empowers them to be actually able to deliver these services? Not just in terms of earning, because I think when it comes to earning, it's, it's a little bit complicated because of the local policies and labor laws within each country but what i'm talking about is how much involvement how much do we put a refugee on the same table when talking about services that involve them so one of the things i hear you saying is that the way the system is set up now and the way it has evolved over time Mm -hmm. is one that doesn't really create opportunities for refugees to be self-reliant or or maybe it, it puts obstacles in the way of refugees being self-reliant am i hearing that yeah, correctly yeah it's uh, it's that the ability for refugees to earn something and have a life out of themselves and i think UNHR is also realizing this in the past few years, so mm-hmm. they are already testing some models whereby you know they are putting refugees in the forefront of their own development. But this is only happening within a very few examples. You know, uh, for example, in Kenya there is this new settlement that is being created. It's called Kalobeye, and it's like an annex to Kakuma refugee camp. This is a totally new innovative area where they are trying to run away from the giver-receiver model and having refugees and host community take charge of their own development. I think this is something that should have been encouraged in the development of refugees since the Mediterranean sector started. My hope is just that this will continue and other refugees, for example, in the Middle East will be treated in the same way, you know, suggesting that countries also that are hosting these refugees are able to allow some space. We've just seen a big success with Ethiopia allowing refugees to be able to work and move freely, just joining the likes of Uganda. This is where I think we should be going when it comes to to the humanitarian operations. And the other point I had is the transparency of things in humanitarian and I think also this is an issue in most development areas the ultimate stakeholder in any service is the person who is receiving the service but I feel like in the refugee and humanitarian sector the refugee is not always that person told 
about whatever services that they're not told exactly uh-huh. for example you know let's just say food right we know there is fortified food that refugees receive and this food is calculated at a certain percentage so that it's not always enough in terms of volume but it should be enough in terms of nutrients that a person receives on daily basis yes but how much of that information do we relay to the refugees? Where does this food come from? Some of the food is, is not edible and some of it is good. What do you mean some of the food is not edible? So, for example, when you keep food in a container for like two years, right? Oh, you mean it just goes bad? Yeah, it's it goes bad. bad you know, and, and, and I'm not saying this is like the general condition. You know, mm-hmm. generally things are good, but there are cases where you find you need to give people at least some little information. Sometimes there is like shortages or cuts in services and people are just stranded. So how do you do that? How do you make things more transparent in a refugee camp where you've got limited infrastructure? Mm -hmm. What channels do you use that are really practical for informing people? Okay, so in every refugee camp there is a community leadership system Mm -hmm. whereby refugees elect or appoint their own leaders. In some of these camps, leaders are chosen based on nationality so that you have this one ethnic group or this one country group has one community leader and others is just based on zones like of a refugee camp. So let's say this zone has this community leader and it's these community leaders that are supposed to then be the contact person with the UNHCR, with the government and the different other agencies. And do you think that that system works well? Because there's... It doesn't. It doesn't <laughs> because the idea of having community leaders is really great. The only problem is that power dynamic the intentional hierarchy exists so that the community leader only earns a little bit higher hierarchy within the community but toward the agencies and the people out there he is he or she is still a receiver of information he is still is not a contributor they receive information go tell your people so you've talked about the hierarchies of power you've got ngo workers mm-hmm. and then you've got the international organizations themselves mm-hmm which are employing the NGO workers, who are then liaising with community leaders, Mm -hmm. who are then dealing with the members of Of the the community. community. Do you see a darker side to the way that hierarchy works in terms of how decisions are made and how people are treated? Exactly. It's it's even more complicated in multinational uh, refugee camps like Kakuma, where you have about... 14 to 17 nationalities Mm -hmm. and in each nationality people identify differently for example if you have a community of five nationalities and you put a south sudanese community leader in that community south sudanese they don't primarily identify as south sudanese they primarily identify with their own ethnic group so you can divide that again into smaller entities and it's so very difficult to be able to meet the needs and and the voices well, of all the refugees. Doesn't each group have its own leaders? That was before in in in, in Kakuma at least. Yeah. In 2012, that system changed because it became too complicated. There were just too many groups, and UNHCR kind of found it was like kind of being a source of conflict within the community. So they said, why don't you just have multinational community leaderships? So you have in one zone with one <laughs> chair lady and one chairman. Like based on the country that the person came from? No. Based on where they live in that refugee camp. Oh. It's, did that work better? No. 
it didn't. Uh-huh. It didn't work better because there are so many other things in yeah. play. Language barriers, there is cultural... Tensions between different groups. Exactly. The differences that already exist with these groups. But still, it was a much less sophisticated system of community leadership. Only if there was a way to actually involve the actual people who are being represented. Right. Yeah, so that is kind of the darker side of it that I would I would say. That the people themselves were not being represented? No, no, they're not. You know, these, these community leadership systems are based on the idea that when you elect a leader, they're supposed to represent you so that these agencies and UNHCR does not deal with everyone in the community. And it's, it's impossible, of course, for these agencies to deal with everyone. But I think it has to go beyond these leaders. So, for example, each agency has community workers mm-hmm. in the different sectors. So you would have a youth worker, you'd have gender worker within the community. Mm-hmm. Part of their work is to bring cases to the attention of the agencies and agencies can be able to solve them. And, and part of their work is also to just ensure that people know where to access these services. So this is also one brilliant side of most of these workers are refugees uh, themselves. Still, even in that system, that power dynamic also exists a lot. And what are the negative aspects of that power dynamic? So the negative aspect is basically that the refugees are not part of their own development, that they, they are being left out. You, you find that many people in the camp then become just idle. The idea of having uh, leadership committees and the different sectoral committees like the education committee or the health committee mm-hmm. and then workers who work under the auspices of those different bodies mm-hmm. is, I think, well intended to provide people a voice in decisions through some sort of representation. Mm-hmm. And what I hear you saying is that for a variety of reasons, those representative bodies, they're not really effectively representing the views of the majority of uh, people they're supposed to be serving. Yes. And that part of the reason for that is because you have different power dynamics that, that might be influenced by uh, ethnic tensions or might be influenced by language mm-hmm. or might be influenced by personalities, by, by all sorts of factors. Yeah. So do you see an alternative that would be more empowering for people? Yeah, so it goes back to the, to the emergency situation stuff whereby we should stop by you know considering refugees as temporary residents of these refugee cities that we are creating and considering more as a, as residents of wherever they are currently staying because that is the only way we stop treating them as you know subordinates as people who need to receive services rather as people who contribute can contribute actively to their yeah, own that's development a great insight this goes beyond just the agencies and UNHCR. it also goes to the international community at the un african union how much do we advocate for refugees to their governments because you find for example in kenya and tanzania where you know i've lived there is a lot within the refugee convention that these countries have not enacted or they have enacted but they are intentionally leaving out when it comes to giving these services to the refugees. I don't think the refugees should be left encamped in this structure whereby as long as you have a community, then you are okay. 
I think like any any other person, the refugees should be free, right? They should they should have that freedom to address issues when they want to address them directly. Right now, you know, there are so many other ways that a refugee young person like me could have made it in life. But I tell you, there is no one who really prepared me for this life here. I just I was like an outlier. Mm-hmm. among among the refugees out right. there. Otherwise, I would just be there believing that everything has to come through these agencies. And I don't think it's supposed to be that way because, as I said, life in a refugee camp is more complex. Just depending on the agencies alone will not be able to sustain life in a refugee camp. Right. So that's a good message. It goes back to the idea of self-reliance, yeah. which is what your organization stands for yeah. and works for. You set up Resilience Action International Mm -hmm. to respond to the need for services that you were observing in the refugee camp, in Kakuma. Mm -hmm. What does it do that that distinguishes it from other NGOs that are working in the camp? So we have two ways that we are different. Uh, One is refugees controls the entire organization. We have a budget of around uh, 200 to 300,000 by year right now and, and where where do you raise that money so we have we raise money from foundations and contractors and other uh, donor NGOs mm-hmm. that's a, that's our biggest uh, source of funding and I do most of the fundraising even when I'm I'm here just help with writing proposals we trust the refugees to be able to run the activities we provide a lot of support in terms of having all plans set in place so that everyone knows what is supposed to happen every month. We hire a few professionals to actually support like the most technical areas that require a lot of technical expertise. Uh, for example, you know, we have a finance assistant who is a Kenyan. Uh, we recently had a business development uh, person who is also Kenyan and they have been really crucial to supporting the work that refugees themselves are able to push within their communities. Uh, and with this, then our priorities are determined within the same community. We go back to the people in the community a lot. How do you deal with the issue that you mentioned around now a multi-ethnic, multilingual yeah. group in a zone? The biggest issue we had at the beginning was because we were purely a voluntary organization and the most people we got on our team, like staff and volunteers, were Congolese. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that was the big area. But when we started getting enough funds to be able to hire refugee professionals into different positions, we were able to balance both in terms of gender and in terms of national and ethnic uh, representation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of the people we serve, so far the biggest population has been South Sudanese, followed by Burundians. Somali and then Congolese. Yeah. And, and that's because Congolese are just 6% of Kakuma refugee camp. Mm-hmm. But we've just completed a pilot in Yarugusu in Tanzania right now. And there we only serve Congolese and Burundians because those are the people who live in that refugee camp. So Resilience Action International is operating in two in, camps? Yeah, we are now operating in two camps um, mm-hmm. in, in Kenya and in Tanzania. Uh-huh. Yeah, and we will be expanding soon probably to DRC as well. Uh, okay. Now, the other aspect of our work that is different uh, from, from, from the other humanitarian agencies is we don't always shy away from areas that the typical humanitarian agencies will not involve in. Our Section of Productive Health Program, for example, 
has been recognized in the camp as one of the most important work because it's a very culturally sensitive area teaching young girls and young boys about sexuality uh, and talking you know with openness just giving them all accurate information because most reproductive health programs that are offered to refugees are focused on abstinence only you know when right. i grew up you know I, in my foster family i had six sisters all of them not even a single one remaining got pregnant before they turned 17 mm-hmm. you know and and these stories are there if you go to every refugee camp you find the issue of teenage pregnancy teenage early marriage it's a huge problem but it's also a silent problem that people intentionally don't want to talk about and sometimes UNHCR you know feels they need not to really engage in such controversial topics but we you're willing to exactly take. we've been taken to police so I almost got jailed for that you know for giving a Somali girl sexual information but I was just proud of that because I think we are able to help many girls stay in school even with difficult conditions in these refugee are camps. Are you distributing modern contraceptives? So we don't distribute because of the politics of the camp, but we refer them to the uh-huh. agencies that is supposed that to distribute. Mm-hmm. But still, that's one aspect that we really haven't been successful because even the agency that provides these services is also kind of bound within these cultural limitations of the communities. And it's just a matter of asking ourselves what is more important between keeping ourselves within the cultural boundaries and providing these services that are really important. When you cross those cultural lines, because you, you've you made a determination yeah. that the information is, is important to the future of, of those people, mm-hmm. then you're really appropriating the decision-making from the community, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. That's kind of a donor mentality. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes the reality is that in a rapidly changing world, that kind of top-down action is is useful or is necessary. Yeah, it the, is. The alternative could be just let all the teenage girls get pregnant. Yeah, but you know, do you know one reason why we've been successful, at least so far, is because from the very beginning we involved the community. Uh-huh. So when we trained these adolescents, we also trained parents. At first, there was a little bit of opposition from parents, but we discovered it's because even themselves growing up, they didn't know about these things. So we started teaching them half of what we teach their children. Once they know the data and what is happening in the community, but also why these have been happening, how the body of a child changes, and what are the pressures, the Mm -hmm. peer pressure and the economic pressure that, that get these girls and what are the effects, most of the response come back to be really positive and parents most of them would want their kids to be, you know, given this information. Of course, with some limitation, sure. always you always have to make that decision on their behalf as well to ensure that you are meeting the best interest of the youth in these communities. Yeah. Isabel, I want to ask you two questions I've been mm-hmm. asking all the guests on the podcast this season. So my first question is what is something almost no one agrees with you on? In the refugee work, I always don't agree with the broad definition of innovation, what people call innovation. Yes, tell me about uh, that. There is, there is so much happening to the services 
that don't always address the core needs of uh, what refugees want because innovation you know comes in with new thing or, or you new know, ideas. better better ideas i think sometimes innovation is just looking at current ideas you well, know and that's a great example of the darker side of yeah. development where you're bringing in new things that aren't adding value exactly yeah it, it just helps to just look at what you already have and ask yourself the question how can we do it better working within the same parameters of current operations yes I actually agree with you about that. So I agree with you on that, but I also agree that many people think of innovation as something that that we should aspire to even if it's often doesn't add value. So I love that answer. Second, can you share with the listeners of the podcast a lesson you've learned uh, through your experience working on human development? My biggest lesson that I have learned is that development doesn't happen until the people that are concerned are truly involved in whatever innovations or interventions that we are targeting towards them. That's why my organization works with refugees. We run an, an entire NGO by refugees. They, they control our budgets, they control our bank account, but it's, that's just one side of it. But the other side of it is whatever you want to bring to the refugees, just have them involved, have their voice in there. And the second thing is, I think accountability is one of the most forgotten things in the humanitarian sector. There is just a lot of corruption that hardly gets talked about. And there is kind of this idea that nothing in the humanitarian sector gets out of the media, right? And that kind of hinders the accountability that should be there. And that's a lesson that I've learned, you know. If we want to really change, we should start improving the way we are accountable to the people that we are serving. So that's another example of the darker side of development is that in these well-intended activities to help people in need, that there's also corruption and exploitation. But your first uh, point reminds me very much of a quote from Julius Nyerere, Mm -hmm. who was the first president of Tanzania. Mm -hmm. And he said, people cannot be developed. They must develop themselves. Exactly. Thank you very much, Musabel, for sharing your perspective with uh, listeners of the Deeper Look podcast and with me. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Patrick. It was great. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. Let me know what you thought of the conversation today. We've touched on some fairly controversial topics. Share your comments and feedback with us and leave a review of the podcast. And stay tuned for more upcoming episodes taking a look at the darker side of development.